Okay, so let us look at um, scripture on this beautiful afternoon. Obviously, they have a better spot, but uh, it's not too bad here. <laughs> uh, so we're looking at um, Nehemiah, and we've come to Nehemiah chapter 10. It's just three chapters away from the end of the book, so that's really impressive. We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 10. Just a quick thought before we start uh, thinking, let's think a bit about metaphors for our relationship with God. Like, uh, what are some of the metaphors that we find in the Bible that talks about our relationship with God? I, um, I went back and just quickly browsed through. Um, so some of, some of the uh, examples that we see in Scripture, like the clay and the potter, like God is portrayed as the, the potter and we are the clay that God um, mold and um, God is able to um, uh, make us in his, in, his, um, in his will. There's other metaphors like the vine and the branches where God is the vine and we are the branches uh, and we are, the, yeah, we are connected to God and in that connection we find life. We have other examples like the sheep and the shepherd that uh, I'm sure you all are aware of, uh, uh, quite popular uh, motif, metaphor where God is, Jesus is the good shepherd and we are the sheep. Um, and in all of these portrayals, we often, we see that like God is the, the one who is doing and the others, like the clay, the clay can't really do much in this exchange. Like it's God who molds the clay, is the potter who molds the clay. Uh, the vine and the branches, the, um, the branches cannot do much except be connected to the branch, uh, to the vine. The sheep and the shepherd, again, the same idea of the sheep being like, uh, the shepherd taking care of the sheep. There are, of course, other examples that we see that talks about relationship with God, like we are God's children. Uh, in Romans, in Galatians, it comes up very often. And the, the, we as God's children, we, are, we relate to him as, he, as our father. He is our father. Uh, the strong, powerful motive, idea that God cares for us, that he loves us. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 1, you might be aware of this lovely verse. It says, See, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Uh, our names are inscribed in the palms of our hands, according to this poetic depiction. God cares for us, and we are his children, and uh, he is our father. Elsewhere, we see that his, God is depicted as his friend. We are his friends, like John fifteen five. Again, another remarkable picture of how God relates to us as his friends. Like, what do we do with friends? We share our joys, we share our, story, our stories, our struggles. We go for walks with friends, we talk with friends, we share a meal with friends, and we see Jesus and uh, portraying himself in that relationship as well. There's also another category that you may also be aware, that is that God is the bridegroom and the church or the people are his bride, uh, the metaphor of marriage or in, the, in a wider sense, the metaphor of a covenant. Um, we, we, uh, it's probably useful to remember that covenant is often the metaphor that God uses to portray his relationship with us. Covenant, of course, is essentially a legal and a binding agreement between two groups. It's legal and official. It's organized by, uh, by law, so to say, the, by, by the authority. Um, for example, for... Uh, a much-awaited wedding that's coming up. I had to get authorized by the National Records of Scotland so that I can officiate the wedding, solemnize the wedding. So in other words, uh, because a covenant is something that's legal, legal and binding agreement between two parties. So the focus in the covenant relationship is the reciprocal relationship that two parties have, uh, some kind of agreement between the two parties. 
compared to the potter and the clay, right? Compared to the sheep and the shepherd, we have the depiction of God's relationship with us in this covenant relationship. So th- that is what we want to think about for, for a bit in this sermon today, the covenant between God and us. God's relationship with human beings is depicted as covenants, as agreement that in- involves like bilateral relationship, right? Um, if we do a bit of uh, digging into the word covenant, the Arab, a Hebrew word for uh, covenant, it comes from the word to fetter. And of course, fetter is a bit of a dated word. We don't really use the word fetter, but to bind, to, uh, to be bound. To, a fetter is something that ties to mostly the ankle of a person, uh, essentially binding them to some kind of agreement. I, I know that's not the, the best picture right now, but that is literally the, what, what fetter means. To be bounded to a particular uh, responsibility, a, a bound servitude even. So this is the kind of relationship that in this covenant relationship, God and us are bounded to one another. Uh, not just us, by the way, who are bounded to God. Even God is bounded to us, to be faithful to us, to, be, uh, to love us and to care for us. So there are different instances of covenants that we encounter, some of them depicted here uh, in the Bible. Uh, the covenant between Noah and God, in which God promises that he will, uh, he will not um, wipe out the uh, people for their sins, that he will be gracious to them despite their sins and despite their unfaithfulness. Uh, we see that in Genesis. Uh, we, we, obviously, we have the covenant between God and Abraham, or Abram in the beginning. Um, there's actually a remarkable chapter in Genesis chapter 15. If you have time, absolutely uh, encourage you to read that uh, chapter. It's a remarkable story of God making a, a covenant with him, with, with Abram, um, in which he promises that he promises Abraham to bless him and make his descendants to be as numerous as the stars, as the sand in the in the uh, as the sand and so on and so forth. As long as God, as long as Abraham steps out of his home to the promised land, the land that God is going to give him. We have the covenant with uh, between God and David, in which God says, "If you follow my uh, if you follow my uh, commandments, um, I will establish your kingdom uh, for generations and for for all of eternity." We have the covenant between Moses, that Moses kind of brokered between God and Israel, in which uh, the understanding is that the people must obey the law and God will make them into an established nation. So all these examples of covenant relationships that uh, God establishes with the people. Now, in the case of Nehemiah, coming to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah and the people knew all these stories, knew all these histories. And so they, they understand the tradition of making covenants with God. So in this particular moment when they have rebuilt the wall, as you know from the story, uh, they have rebuilt the wall in 52 days. They have brought back the community together. They have made a, a, a survey, a, a list of the people who are there. Now they're ready to reestablish their relationship with God. And what is the method that they do to reestablish this? They cut a covenant. They make a covenant. They know that you can't just re-establish a relationship with God just out of the blue in your own whim. You need to follow the tradition that has been laid down in history. So this was their way in chapter 10. This was uh, the way of renewing the covenant that had been passed down to them through the, through the history. They're making a new covenant. They're following the protocol, so to say. Uh, and and 
uh, Nehemiah's covenant is to renew and re-establish that relationship. So for this sermon today, let's reflect on the covenant that Nehemiah and the community makes with God and reflect on it and see if there's anything that enriches us and helps us in our own understanding of our relationship with God. So that's very largely the, the trajectory for the sermon uh, today. So um, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 10. It's uh, 38 verses, so we will not be reading through the whole thing, but we will just uh, have a sort of a breakdown of the uh, uh, various verses. Uh, if you could, yeah, go to the next slide. Yeah. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, the, the last verse of chapter 9, uh, it ends off with this note and says, In view of all of this, we are making a binding ag- agreement and putting it in writing. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing our seals to it. They are set down to start or to make this covenant, renew this covenant with God. Now, if you just do a quick scan of chapter 10, um, uh, in my Bible, ESV Bible, I've got a nice breakdown uh, of the different verses. But if you just do a quick scan of the the, uh, chapter, not the can you go back to the previous? No, no sorry. Um, so in ch- chapter 10, it's essentially the discussing the covenant of Nehemiah in the community. Uh, okay, yeah, uh, I think that's all I have. Um, and if you look at the, just do a quick scan of the uh, chapter, you notice that it's, it's essentially a document. Uh, it's got names, right? It's got the signatories, people who are making that uh, covenant. And it's got different art- articles, like points that they are, uh, making a covenant about the conditions, so to say. Um, so, in in really brief, uh, if you go next slide, I just put together these uh, basic description. In the first one to verse one to twenty-seven, essentially these are names, like a lot of names, like eighty-four names that are listed here, and these are names of uh, the leaders, like Nehemiah. And by the way, Nehemiah at this point he has become the governor of the community, which is interesting because he was first a cupbearer in the Persian. Uh, empire and he had come here to build, rebuild the wall and now he has climbed up to a position of leadership in the community. Nehemiah and the governor and the leaders, their names are right there in the beginning and then in, from verse 28 onwards uh, the people who joined in signing this covenant and verse 30 onwards uh, these are the, the points, the articles of the covenant um, and we will just very briefly go through uh, the, the articles one by one. But I thought it was interesting that um, this document, and I'm, I'm sure you've been in committee meetings and official meetings, and you know how, how much work it involves to make documents like this. And I just read this, and this must have taken a lot of time to, to put together. Like, I've been in committee meetings, I've been in organizational making <laughs> statements, and there's a lot of back and forth, there's a lot of discussions, and I, I'm just um, imagining how this documents have come together and in the form that it did. It must have been a lot of work putting this document together. And moreover, it's not just between two parties. This is between the community and God. Like, God is involved. So the, the escalation of, like, how serious this document is, like, multiplies uh, uh, multiple uh, times, right? So this is a statement that they put together. And in, in the first, from the first verse itself, we know that the names of people who signed this. 84 names, uh, to be exact. They are putting their names there. They're putting their stakes there in this statement. Nehemiah and the first person, and then uh, the other people like the Levites, 
and his, their assistants, the Levites, meaning the, the priestly tribe of Israel, uh, they, they, their names and their assistants. Then we've got the civic leaders in, from verse 14 and verse 27, the names of those who are leaders in, in the community. They're putting their names there, like as a sign of their seriousness, signing their names. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you know what that means. Like there's a lot of responsibility that they're taking on with this signat- making these signatories. They're putting their uh, role as respond- being responsible for the community. And then we read in verse 24 that not, it's not just these named people. Uh, they gathered everybody, every grown-up who can think, who can reason, who can engage intelligently with the idea, right? Uh, and I, I, I assume that this involves anybody who is above a certain age of maturity, who has knowledge and understanding, as it says. They all, they all brought together, and all these people joined together, it says. Um, let me just check what verse that is. Um, um, yeah, so this is in verse 9. They all joined together, joined their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Curse and oath. I mean, this is serious stuff that they're signing themselves into. And, uh, and they are involving all of the community, like making a serious um, um, document here, saying that this is the con- content of our covenant. We're making this as a covenant with God. And uh, we're signing ourselves with a curse and an oath. I mean, this is uh, quite remarkable. Um, so we, we have this community we have, and coming together to make a covenant with God in all seriousness, in all solemnity. What were the contents of their covenant? What did they agree to do? What were the conditions? First of all, they write, they will not, we will not let our sons or daughters marry foreigners or um, we will not give our daughters for, uh, for marrying foreigners, basically. Again, whoa, <laughs> that, what's going on here? Like, uh, this verse gave me a lot of anxiety because it's, 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 it can be very confusing. Like, uh, uh, is it about ethnicity? Is it about uh, um, tribes? Uh, is it about culture? Is, is there some kind of um, discrimination of particular cultures going on? We could talk about it for a long time. In short, I would just say that it has to do with the issue of idolatry. The, uh, the, the experiences of the Israelites were that the, these foreign uh, people with their gods would marry into the community and they would bring their idols, their gods with them. They would bring their religious practices with them and they would, um, in, in the perspective of the Jewish community, they would mislead their, their spouses into joining in other worship of other gods and other uh, religious practices. We see this plenty of times in the Bible, echoed in the Bible, you see it in Exodus, we see it in Deuteronomy many times. It's not just in this particular verse, it's the daughters that are highlighted. But in other parts of the Bible, it's the sons and daughters that they, they are uh, commanded to protect from these influences of uh, the worship of other gods. So intermarriage is not the main issue. And uh, the issue is about worship of God, about how these mixing often led to the worship of other gods and other idols. To, to, to um, confirm the fact that it's not about intermarriage, um, we know that Moses, Moses married a Cushite woman. 
Uh, a Kushite is obviously not from Israel. Uh, it's from, uh, I think, from the Egyptian region. And there's no condemnation of, uh, of Moses who, brought, who married a Kushite woman. We have other multiple examples as well. The main biggest example, I think, would be the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was not a, a, from, from within the Jewish community. She was a foreigner, a Moabite woman. But she is upheld as an example for the community. In fact, her name comes up in the genealogy of, of Jesus. When um, I, I can't recall if it's in Matthew or Mark, but uh, she comes up in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, showing how she is an example, despite the fact that she is a case of intermarriage. So intermarriage is not the issue here. The issue is the, the, the idolatry and the mixing of devotions uh, from, between God and the, the people. In this particular context, if you remember, the Jewish communities were exiled and they were coming back to Jerusalem, trying to make a new community. So it was important that they maintain as much as they can the purity of worship of God. Um, they could not afford from the beginning to be led astray by the different gods that they see around them, different kinds of worship that they see around them. So this commandment or this, uh, this thing about intermarriage in the Old Testament, if you read Ezra, it's even more uh, stark and uh, even more crazy, I would say. But uh, the, I, the command about the uh, intermarriage is more of a uh, contextual, more of a historical and temporary, I would say, imperfect depiction, depiction of the meaning of holiness, to be set apart uh, from God's people, to be set apart from the other peoples of the world, from, from sins and from idolatry. So it's not an absolute rule, but it's a representation of what it means to be holy, which is to be set apart. And again, I would say it's an imperfect, uh, but all the same, it's a meaningful uh, representation of what it means to be uh, holy, to be worshippers of the holy God. So that's the first part of the agreement that they signed, that we would not give our uh, daughters and sons uh, to be married to uh, other peoples. The second one is to honor the Sabbath. Uh, I'm always intrigued by how important Sabbath is for the people, the Jewish people. And obviously everybody likes to rest and uh, everybody likes holiday every once in a while. But I think it cuts deeper than that. Um, of all the priorities that they could have chosen, they, they chose only three big uh, uh, conditions that they put here. Of all the things, they, they had to choose Sabbath. And I think it's because Sabbath is an important aspect of uh, their, their faith with God, their relationship with God. Uh, I think Sabbath deals with people's work and um, if you could put it like this, people's economics and money-related stuff and their engagement with work, engagement with the world. Uh, it has to do with how we deal with one another and with our place in this world. So for most of us, that involves work and businesses, um, and our engagement with society and so on and so forth. For the for Nehemiah's community, um, most of people's work involved agriculture. There were some carpent, carpenters, there were some masonry, uh, people in the military. But these regulations about Sabbath touches on those angles. Firstly, to practice rest, to practice trust in God's provision. That it's not their engagement, it's not their work, not the hands, ultimately that provides for them, but it is God who provides for them. So to take rest is to show that, yes, I acknowledge that it is God who provides for me and it is God who takes care of me. Um, 
again, we have to recall that this is a time uh, before the days of salary, like getting a salary. Working today means eating, uh, uh, eating today means to work for that day, um, almost like day, uh, day laborers do. Like uh, if you don't work today, you don't have enough for today. So to not work for one day on Sabbath day is an act of trust, a radical faith that um, God will provide. God will take care of me, right? On a daily basis to, to survive, right? Uh, God will take care of me. To not work, to not have, to, to have nothing for the day is a sign of radical trust in God. So in that sense, to trust God, to, to rest is a sign of trusting that it is God who provides. Also, we note something else in, 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 verse, um, in, in these verses. Um, verse, in verse 31, if you read the, the, the verse there. Um, it also has to do with taking advantage of people who are in need. Or, so I think in general, it could, uh, in my reflection, uh, it, Sabbath or honoring God has to do with honoring God over prophets, over the work that we have. To honor God means to, to, uh, to honor God as more important than the work that we have. Right? And of course, the ethos of justice is very important for the, for the Jewish community in, in the law of Moses. Um, in verse 31 in Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, they made a pledge that they would forego the crops of the seventh year. The, the crops of the seventh year will be for charity, so to say. It'll be for people. It's not for me to take uh, in the, the crops of the seventh year. Again, I, I don't know, like, this is radical uh, stuff that, uh, uh, that the Jewish laws uh, encourage people to practice, the, the practice of Sabbath, the practice of rest and giving for the people, right? To provide for those who are in need. So it has to do with trust. It has to do with honoring God over prophets and honoring God over, uh, over uh, the work that we have, learning to rest and trusting that God is a provider, not these hands that produces the crops, but it is God who provides. And the Sabbath day is a weekly rhythm to remind them of this fact that it is God who provides for them. So again, I think that that's the reason why Sabbath is such an important aspect of the Jewish law. And they make this pledge, make this as an important part of their covenant pledge to honor the Sabbath. The last one, it says, they, would, they pledge that they will support the house of God. They support the worship of God. Just two quick things. Um, the, the, the people, um, the, the, the law of, uh, the, the Mosaic law, as it's called, the law set down by Moses, um, has um, provisions within which people must give to the temple. People must uh, contribute to the temple. So there are already, um, knee, um, how do I put it? There are, there are, ways of giving to the church, to the temple, to the house of God that are already commanded within scripture. And those are echoed like the firstborn, the giving of the tithe, uh, giving of first fruits. Um, these are all commanded in scripture. So in a way they are uh, kind of reaffirming that they will obey those commands. But also we know that they, they pledge to give in special cases when the need arises. For example, they, uh, in, um, in one of the verses, they pledged that they would give wood for the building of the temple. And in other places, they said that they would give one-third of their, of their shekel, their, their wealth, um, for the building. 
So they pledge themselves to give according to the command, commanded uh, stipulations, but also they pledge to give as and when uh, the need arises. I think this, this agreement is set uh, as a way to ensure that the worship of God continues in Jerusalem. It costed something to them. One third of their shekel, their silver collection is a lot. But that's what they pledge uh, for this special case. And you might recall that the whole point of the Jewish exiles returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, one of the main, if not the main thing, is so that the worship of God can continue, so that the temple can be restored and worship of God can continue. So they understand the priorities of supporting the house of God, support, supporting the worship of God. And they prioritize that in this statement, the covenant statement as well. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, uh, the verse that we read earlier, it says to make a covenant. Uh, the literal word is to cut, to cut a covenant. And this phrasing is used, in, interesting phrasing is used because covenants were made with, with a cost. Uh, there's always some cost incurred. It's a cost that's cut. They were cut. And often in, that, in, in the past, it literally meant cutting of a sacrifice, animal sacrifice, to sign the covenant. Um, a covenant always cost something. Um, and the, these decisions that they have made, they knew that it's going to cost them, like their life, their comfort, and their wealth, right? Some of the things that they could have done otherwise, they knew that it's going to cost them, uh, but they were willing to pay the price. So I, I want to just um, uh, reflect a little bit more in the, on the implications of these three uh, points of uh, of the article like they will not uh, they, we will not give our daughters for marriage uh, we'll honor the sabbath and we will um, support the house of the lord how are we supposed to think of these um, very strange uh, articles like, i think firstly um, i would say that this has to do with again holiness it's about holiness it's about being set apart and um, honoring the devotions that we have to God. I must first qualify that the rule of intermarriage, again, I would strongly emphasize, it's not about ethnic, it's not about the uh, literal intermarriage, because in the New Testament, we are told that there's now no more Jew, there's no more Gentile. God's worship has been poured out on all peoples. The Holy Spirit, when the Pentecost came, uh, last Sunday being Pentecost Sunday, if you remember, the Holy Spirit fell on all people, and all people uh, uh, the, the tongues that people spoke were representative of all the nations of, of the world. So it's not so much about the ethnicity, but about the purity of the devotion to God. Like God is the one who is worshipped, protecting the worship of God. So that, that comes across strongly, and that's something for us to think about as well, like uh, as, as, a, as a principle that we can take away for ourselves. Like we preserve the worship or devotion, one uh, single-hearted devotion towards God. But if you look closely, you also notice that there's a communal aspect to this. It says, we will not give our daughters uh, for marriage. We will not give. So it's not, they're not saying that I will not marry. They're saying we will not give our daughters for marriage. Uh, this brings the, the sense of responsibility towards our own, towards our families, towards uh, to protect and to safeguard 
our, our, our families, our colleagues, our friends, um, and those people in our circles, uh, to protect them in, in, in the sense of their devotion and their relationship with God. So m- what I would suggest as our takeaway from, this, uh, from these verses is uh, it's to safeguard, sorry, I have to come out of it here, to safeguard the faith of our own and our circles, our homes and our family, our friends and our loved ones. So it is, it is to, um, to, to, to protect and to uh, watch out for our loved ones. And that may, may, may be our roles as parents or our roles as colleagues in our workplace and the friends that we have around us, right? Or uh, a number of uh, us, you are involved as Sunday school teachers. I mean, literally, that is to be direct mentors, to, to be jealous and to be protective of their devotion and their relationship with God. A commitment that we will watch out for those among us. Right? And I think that's a beautiful commitment that we can take away from, uh, from, this, uh, from this article. The second one, honor the Sabbath. Again, um, this is, um, uh, we don't have a Sabbath that we practice literally, uh, but the, the, the principle of Sabbath, as I mentioned, is about resting, it's about taking a breather. Uh, it's about, uh, and in, I was reflecting more about this and I, I thought it's also about extending generosity to others uh, through the practice of Sabbath. Uh, let me just clarify what I mean by that. Um, to take a day off, to take a day to rest means to not be working for myself, to not be caught up in self, self-profit or self-benefit, uh, to not be caught up in even self-preservation. Uh, the, the idea to take rest for our day, day wage labor, um, the, the, I think the, 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 the biggest challenge for a day wage labor to rest on a day would be, who will take care of me, right? Uh, how, do, how will I earn profit if I don't work today? So to take rest is to resist that and say, uh, let me not worry about my self-profit. Let me not worry about even my self-preservation, right? God will provide. God will take care of me. And I think, again, that's, I think that's a radical thought. Uh, the, the idea of Sabbath is a radical thought for us in our context today. Like in, in the days of salary, when you're getting salary, um, it's not so much of a, a, a burden to take a day off. In fact, like I said, we would happily take a day off. But I think that's not really the point. Uh, of course, rest is an important part of that. But uh, the idea that we would dedicate a part of our life for something other than self-profit, the idea that we will keep a day out of our week um, for something other than self-preservation. Uh, I think uh, that's um, to serve God and to serve others as the main intent of that day, of that practice Sabbath. And again, you can, you can blow this wide open by considering that the Bible says Sabbath is not just one day anymore. Like we live in Sabbath, in, in Jesus Christ. So, I mean, that's just an uh, open-ended thing that I, can, I, I would leave you with um, as we reflect about this. But to honor the Sabbath is, um, yeah, I can't read it here, but uh, it's to, to rest and to move beyond self-profit, self-gain, and to move even beyond self-preservation. The third one, to support the house of God. Um, again, this is where when we draw parallels literally from the Old Testament, it, becomes, it can become uh, ris- uh, complicated and even dangerous because uh, the worship and the temple functions very differently today and in the days of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, 
Worship happens only in the temple. Worship happens only in Jerusalem. And so when people are encouraged to give and contribute towards the temple, they are literally contributing towards the worship of God. Um, and of course, we could say something similar about the church as well. But again, the Bible tells us, and as Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, uh, you shall worship God. In, it's not in that mountain or in this mountain that we worship God. Uh, we worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, uh, CC and Ictus cannot claim such a special place in uh, demanding your resources and all of that. Although that is an important part of it. Uh, I don't want to minimize that. I think the, what we can take away from here is... Uh, that um, it is imperative to give and to contribute towards the worship of God. Uh, to give, yes, to give monetarily as well. And in CEC, uh, there's no urgent need right now in terms of uh, uh, the giving. And of course, it speaks of the, 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 the fact that people have been giving, people are generous in contributing to the church, um, and people will continue to give uh, because this is where we... we um, we prioritize on the worship of God, on discipleship. But in another sense, there are ways in which we can give towards the worship of God. Uh, in the in narrow, narrow sense, participating in singing, uh, leading in worship, this is a great way. If you're singing blesses and helps other people worship, uh, that is very much appreciated. If your presence, if your friendship, and if your efforts and your time blesses others, that is definitely giving towards the worship of God. Um, so, so yeah, I think we can, uh, we can draw out principles from these three articles and we can, um, we can reflect on these uh, three more uh, uh, implications or applications for our own lives as well. To protect and to nurture the fates of our own people in our own circle, the first point. To rest, to rely on God and to serve others without self-profit and self-preservation. And thirdly, to give and to support towards the worship of God. But we need to go back, zoom out a little bit and ask about covenant. Do we have a covenant? Uh, Nehemiah had a covenant. The community had a covenant. Do we have a covenant uh, today in the 21st century? And I would say, yes, we have a covenant. We have a, we have a new covenant as the followers of Christ. Um, Jesus made the new covenant and the price for cutting the new covenant is paid by jesus jesus pays the price the the sacrifice that's needed to cut the covenant the sacrifice of jesus christ the body and the blood of jesus christ is what is the price that was paid for this covenant to be made last last sunday we had the uh, communion and luke 22 verse 19 that we read out it says, this is Jesus, it quotes Jesus saying, um, this is my blood, um, this is the cup representing the blood of the new covenant. The blood of Christ shed makes the covenant. It is the foundation of the covenant. In other words, this covenant is not dependent on our ability to keep all the regulations. It's not dependent on our obedience in a way. It is dependent on the obedience of Christ. Um, it is dependent on the righteousness of Christ. So, yes, we are, we have a covenant. Uh, we are in covenant relationship with God. But this is a new covenant. And these 
conditions and articles that are laid for us and that we just reflected on, they're not laid for us so that we can qualify for the covenant. It's between us and God and it is mediated by Christ. Christ has completed the covenant. The only thing we can really do is to respond in worship. Worship is a response to the new covenant. And these principles that we just went through, the three principles, I would encourage us to think of them not as um, conditions in, so that God will be pleased with us. I would think of them as more like things we should do as our response to the love of God, to the grace of God. So it, it flows out of a, a, com, a covenant that is already made rather than um, the conditions that will make the covenant. Uh, of course, this is echoed in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Um, I think I have it there. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. Notice that the same languages of covenant, of cutting, of sacrifice, it all is there. But now it's about worship. It's about us responding to God's grace that uh, is already completed in Christ, right? It's worship is, becomes then a response to God's covenant with us in Christ. Worship is a response to God's covenant that has been made with us in Christ. It's uh, a response and an overflow to the fulfilled covenant that we have in Christ. So the three things... Um, responsibility towards our own, uh, honoring the Sabbath, uh, giving towards the worship of God. Those are fitting ways that we can respond. And those are ways that we worship God um, as a response to God's grace and God's love that has been shown to us in the covenant. There's one hymn that uh, kept coming to my mind and I thought I'll just uh, read the, the, the script of that. It comes from, I think, um, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. And it's written by Robert Robinson, who was an English uh, Baptist scholar and pastor. And this verse always meant so much to me. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised to note that all these language of covenant and worship are neatly tied together. And I think this captures what we're trying to say. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I think, I think this beautifully captures the fact that we are bounded, fettered, right? We are bounded by God's goodness and by God's grace. We are bounded. So there's the language of binding and covenant and all of that, but this binding is not one of suppression, and one of oppressing us, but it's one of security, that we are, we are fettered to a secure foundation, and that is the goodness and the grace of God. The cut that made the covenant was the body of Jesus. And it doesn't mean that because we are in this covenant, we are, it doesn't mean that we are perfect. Just like the song says, this is a continual struggle, like prone to wonder and um, continual struggle to follow Christ perfectly, but it's a struggle that we must persist and we must continue because we are binded to God's faithfulness and goodness in the same way that God himself is binded to us because of his son to love us and to 
uh, show us his grace. What else can we do to such a display of God's grace, right? But except to submit him ourselves in worship, to submit ourselves in, um, in surrender in worship. So in, just in, 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 as a way of responding to that, uh, as, as I close, instead of a prayer, I, I thought we could read this as our, uh, as our own prayer and read it out together and then we'll continue to sing. Shall we, shall we read this verse? O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen. Amen.